this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm ji sampath your host for today's episode the tribunals reforms bill 2021 was passed in the lok sabha on august 3rd once it comes into effect or becomes law it will replace the tribunals reforms rationalization and conditions of service ordinance 2021 the bill among other things seeks to abolish several appellate tribunals ranging from the film certification appellate tribunal and the airports appellate tribunal to the authority for advance rulings intellectual property appellate board and the plant varieties appellate tribunal The bill also introduces changes in the terms of service of the officials serving in these tribunals. So as there was hardly any discussion in parliament before the bill was passed there isn't a lot of uh, clarity about it among the public and we hope to bring more clarity on this in this episode of in focus. Some of the obvious questions that come up are what was the need for this bill will the abolition of tribunals increase the workload in the judiciary and what are the implications of the changes in the terms of service of the tribunal officials we discussed these questions with prachi mishra head of research at prs legislative research a delhi based non profit prachi thank you so much for joining us hi sampath glad to be here today prachi to start with Can you give us a quick overview of the bill's history and what exactly does it seek to achieve? Right. I want to sort of start with giving a broader sort of overview. As we all know that tribunal system over the last several years has developed as a parallel to the traditional court system. In 2017, um the Finance Act actually reorganized several of these tribunals by merging them based on similarity in their uh, areas of the, their domain areas. and the number of tribunals at that point uh, in that amendment was reduced from 26 to 19 what that finance act also did was it delegated certain powers to the central government uh, for them to make rules on various things like the qualifications appointments terms of office salaries removal and other various other conditions of service for the persons and members of these tribunals that it rationalized so before this uh, this this provision was made in this act who had these powers to make these rules these were all individually specified in the parent act of uh, the each uh, so for example if um, say the era sort of uh, regulate uh, look at the appellate tribunal then the parent act itself would specify what who uh, specifies the uh, qualifications appointment so it was individual um now it is being shifted uh, during this time it was shifted to the central government to make these rules specify these things to the rules okay so in 2017 these powers came to the central government for the first time in some sense now the acts again there was some variation and there were multiple of these acts that were sort of uh, you know eventually sort of reduced so yeah so in like what you said in 2017 it all came back to the center okay yeah please go on sure so following this the ministry of these rules um specifying things like you know what will be the qualification of the tribunal members what would be the terms and conditions of service what would be the composition of the uh, selection committees which actually select the members who would be on the on these tribunals 
2019, the Supreme Court those 2017 rules and directed the center to reformulate them. The court basically at that point stated that the rules are not meeting the requirements laid down in previous Supreme Court judgments, which mandated judicial independence of these tribunals. And I'll explain them in the fall subsequently as we discuss this. Following that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court striking down the rules, another set of rules were notified in 2020, which were again challenged over similar, you know, uh, concerns regarding lack of conformity with principles that have been laid out regarding independence of the tribunal members. Now, while the court did not strike down the entire set of rules, it suggested several changes related to things like terms of office and eligibility of the tribunal members, which subsequently this ordinance and the bill are trying to address. So, in early this year, in February, uh, there was a tribunal reforms rationalization and conditions of service bill that had been introduced in Lok Sabha in the budget session. That bill could not be passed during the session. So, in April, an ordinance with similar provisions was promulgated. A new set of rules were also notified simultaneously under the Finance Act in June 2021. Now, both these ordinances, which was enforced and the rules were later challenged in Supreme Court. This was also, this also happened in June. So as soon as the rules were notified, they were challenged. Within a month, in July 2021, the court struck down uh, some provisions within the ordinance, which relate to the tenure and the minimum age requirement of these tribunal members. Following that judgment, the previous bill, so this happened in the last two weeks in parliament, the previous bill was withdrawn and a new bill was introduced which would replace the ordinance currently in force and this new bill was passed by parliament this week. Okay, so this new bill, uh, does it uh, address the, 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 the issues which were uh, uh, which were which were which were looked into by the Supreme Court when it ruled on tenure and minimum age. So the bill it basically does two main things. One of it, what you which was mentioned earlier, was that it dissolves existing appellate bodies and transfers their functions to existing um, judicial bodies, mostly high courts. The other thing which it did is that it uh, includes some provisions of the. Are related to term of office, composition of selection committees, qualification of these members, etc. In the bill, now the verdict which came out in July uh, refers to a specific set of principles. The broader principles, like I said, being at ensuring that um, independence of the judiciary and ensuring that uh, there is separation of powers with, between the judiciary and the executive. Now. One thing which I want to sort of flag here is that most of these tribunals have been established as an alternate mechanism to high courts, which implies that they have the status of a high court in our overall judicial system. Now, what the Supreme Court has stated that when a tribunal is vested with the jurisdiction as that of a high court, it must be free from executive interference. So any involvement of the center in appointments for or administrative activities of these tribunals Things like salaries or sanctioning leave, etc. This would all affect their independence. Now, the ordinance has addressed some of these concerns, but some principles still remain uh, unaddressed. So, one thing that was addressed was that ensuring that broad, on a broader principle, ensuring that the primacy of judiciary when uh, selecting who can be a tribunal member, um, that has been ensured. What has uh, not been addressed was one of the things is the term of office of the tribunal members. So the Supreme Court had earlier stated that there should the term of office of a member or a chairperson of a tribunal should be five years and they should have the provisions for reappointment. 
the ordinance provided for a four-year term which was struck down. The bill continues to stick to this same four-year term of office. Now, why the court struck it down? Because uh, what the court said that, you know, if you have a shorter tenure of members um, and along with provisions for reappointment, it allows the executive to influence more control over the functioning of the members. It also discourages um, meritorious candidates from applying for such positions because they would not want to leave their well-established careers to, you know, serve as a member for such a short so these are some of the reasons which the court had stated when striking down this provision. The bill continues to retain the same four-year term of office, basically meaning that it's not sort of it's not changed the term uh, as what had been suggested by the court. The second thing which it um, retains is the minimum age um, of eligibility to be a tribunal member. Now the ordinance had. Uh, said that a person must be at least 50 years of old to be appointed as a member of tribunal. The court had actually struck this down and just basically reiterated its earlier judgments, which emphasized that members uh, should be recruited at a younger age. The court had said that advocates with at least 10 years of relevant experience must be eligible to be appointed as judicial members because this is also the qualification required for a high court judge. So if you're looking at a tribunal as parallel to a high court, then the qualification of the member should also be the same. Um, the bill has again stuck to the provision which was there in the ordinance, which is that the minimum age continues to be 50 years old and it's not uh, you know, amended the provision as what the court had suggested. So these are the two major sort of things which the bill um, has retained what the court had actually struck down. So how does it work if the court says you can't have this and you know uh, how can the government then go ahead and pass a bill with those same provisions uh, which were struck down? I mean, is it legally uh, viable? Won't it be like contempt of court or whatever? I don't know. How is it legally? Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's the court's power is to interpret the law and sort of pass judgments. It's a, a, end of the day, it's parliament's prerogative to pass a law. So it's not the first and there have been several instances when parliament has gone ahead and passed laws which are go against the directions of the Supreme Court. Um, it's what's interesting here is that there is a tussle that you see between the judiciary and the exec in the executive also because what you see, which is why I also sort of went through the history since 2017 is that the executive continues to frame these rules and the court keeps striking down, striking them down. So it seems to be like an ongoing tussle. But the parliament is well within its mandate to sort of, you know, pass the law as it as it deems um, wise in its opinion. Okay, uh, Prachi, let me try and uh, get my wrap my head around this. I'm not a domain expert here. So as I understand, a tribunal is like a high court. Except that it is uh, populated with people who are domain experts, given that you may not get those domain experts from the naturally, you know, whatever judges who are there in the high court. So it enjoys all the powers and its independence should be of the same nature, which means that you don't get the government to be appointing judges uh, who will uh, give rulings in tribunals. Is that right? Right, right. So now this entire bill is trying to undermine that by giving itself some leverage by saying that, okay, after four years, you're going to, you know, we are going to be looking at whether you can get another tenure or not. And by making it uh, more difficult for meritorious people to come in by giving age limits of 50 and so on with a limited tenure, you're again uh, sort of in a way making putting the tribunal uh, chairperson or members on a slightly weaker footing. I mean, is that is that right? Maybe. I mean, yeah, you could sort of uh, sort of lead to these conclusions as well. Like I said, they 
have addressed some of the concerns. Uh, for example, that the selection committee should there the primary post. I mean, you know, the judiciary has to be the uh, has to have the time when selecting these members. So they are ensuring that. But even there, there is a small, very sort of my. It looks like a very minor uh, this thing, but uh, this court had also so the what the bill um, says that um, that uh, the exec the selection committee may s- uh, recommend two members for the uh, for uh, to, as a chairperson or a member, and then the executive will decide who gets to be the member. So even there, there is certain discretion being allowed to the executive that you select two from amongst who uh, you know the committee has um, appointed. It it may seem okay for this uh, people that you know okay it, eventually it's a selection committee you're ensuring the judiciary's primacy there they're suggesting two names and of which the executive has to choose one but the court had actually struck even that, that even that discretion down and said that the executive should have absolutely no discretion when it comes to um, you know deciding who gets to be a, a tribunal member it should absolutely be the uh, selection committee where. Judiciary plays a primary role. So yeah, you're right. It looks like in ensuring, I mean, the way the provisions have been um, maintained, there there will continue to be some form of uh, you know discretion and um, exercise of control that the executive can sort of sustain. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even let's try and be sympathetic to the government's perspective here. Now, I'm just trying to come up with a logic. You have a selection committee which is competent to select people. Okay. And when they give names, why shouldn't we just go with those names? Why does the executive need to have the discretion to select? I mean, that doesn't seem to have any kind of a judicial uh, logic uh, attached to that. Is that's that's my question actually? Well, you know, these are sort of larger questions in terms of why the government is sort of. Um, um, I don't want to sort of comment on that in terms because it's an end of the day, it's a sort of the government's prerogative in terms of how. They are framing it, and then Parliament is passing this law. Right now, how do, how does our system of tribunals compare with uh, those in other countries? I mean, do I mean since this bill is sort of uh, abolishing so many tribunals on the grounds that there are too many layers of uh, litigation, which is a logic given. Do we really have too many tribunals, and uh, are there not legitimate grounds to have all these independent domain-specific tribunals? Right. Um, so the structure of tribunals actually varies um, across countries. So if I were to take in the US, tribunals have are only quasi-judicial functions related to administrative actions. Uh, the constitution actually does not allow vesting judicial powers in any body which is not a court. And the decisions of these administrative tribunals are then you know, subject to judicial review by courts who have jurisdiction over them. UK, on the other hand, has a two-tier tribunal system, which has a first-tier and an up tribunal and an upper tribunal. And uh, appeals against the first-tier tribunal lie with the upper tribunal. And the first-tier itself has several chambers, which has jurisdiction over various subject matters. So, for example, the tax chamber has jurisdiction over matters related to indirect and direct taxation, expenses of MPs there. Um, what one thing which is interesting is that the UK in the UK the administration of all these courts and tribunals is managed by a separate um, organization which is known as Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunals Service. Why I'm mentioning this uh, specifically is that India doesn't have this sort of an independent sort of entity as of now, but over the last few years 
uh, various expert bodies, including the Supreme Court, have suggested that we need to establish an independent entity, and more, I mean, this is called the National Tribunals Commission, which will be responsible to, you know, supervise appointments as well as the functioning and administrative uh, administration of these tribunals. So the judicial function would continue to remain with the tribunals, but their administrative functions can be carried out by this independent body called the um, National Tribunals Commission. Uh, so this is broadly, you know, what we have seen in some of the other countries. As to the question of too many tribunals or, you know, the apt number of tribunals in a country, that's again, you know, very sort of subjective. Um, it sort of brings you back to the sort of core question of why do we need um, tribunals? So in India, Tribunals were basically set up with two main objectives. One was to reduce the burden on our courts. And the other was to bring in some form of specialized knowledge when it comes to adjudication of certain technical matters. Now, if um, one could argue that, you know, if we give our courts enough sort of resources and both, you know, financial resources as well as administrative human resources to reduce their existing pendency, and some form of expertise to deal with technical matters. So, for example, if it's a tax bench, you can have an expert in taxation matters advising, say, the judicial member or something, or just be a technical member. Then you can also sort of bring in that kind of um, specialized knowledge within the existing your traditional court system as well. So, you know, end of the day, it's just a matter of how your overall judicial system works, whether it's efficient or not. Um, if you have Issues overall in terms of capacity, administrative issues, those will get extended even if you, you know, establish new courts, whether it's tribunals or if these are special courts, these kind of issues sort of spill over. So the larger question is not about what is the apt number of tribunals, but the larger question is more, I think, about whether our judicial system is working in an efficient manner or not, or is there a way to sort of, you know, reduce pendency and make them work in a more optimal manner. Okay, so now that you you brought up two points as to why uh, tribunals were sort of uh, set up in the first place, one is to uh, to do with the expertise, and the other is to reduce the workload. Now, uh, taking these two reasons at face value, you now uh, if we abolish uh, so many tribunals and transfer their cases uh, to existing judicial bodies, which uh, essentially means our high courts. We all know our high courts are heavily uh, overloaded with tremendous pendency. So, is this not going to cause further delay in disposal of cases? Um, in uh, one could, you know, argue that um, if you look at the existing pendency in high courts across India, they have about I think fifty-eight lakh pending cases across all high courts, and um, about ninety thousand odd of these have been pending for you know more than thirty years. So yes, if you transfer cases from tribunals to high courts, it sort of adds to the existing you know workload that they have, and it may actually increase the disposal time of um, these cases. Now, what actually the Supreme Court had suggested was that before you sort of go about any exercise of rationalizing or sort of reducing or increasing the number of tribunals, you have to conduct a judicial impact assessment to analyze the impact of such a legislation that if we are rationalizing tribunals or if we are abolishing tribunals, then what would be the impact on the existing system? But if we look at the bills that have been passed in the recent years, neither the Finance Act, which reorganized a bunch of these tribunals, nor the bill that was recently passed, of these provide 
lays out a financial memorandum which estimate that the resources that would be required as a result of this provision or talk about any kind of judicial impact assessment that has been uh, sorry, Sampath, one thing which I, I think, please see if you can sort of edit it uh, later. Uh, I think one of the questions we initially asked about the government sort of intent in trying to do this, right? Yeah. Um, it's It has nothing to do with sort of, you know, the courts, how they have sort of interpreted it. There is a tussle, I agree. But um, they their rationale so far has been more about that uh, the, these courts, these tribunals which exist today, which they are trying to sort of abolish, they are uh, using a lot of resources, but their caseload is fairly low. So it's a sort of, um, to crudely, very crudely put, waste of resources that you are, you know, you have this entire machinery, which is only looking at a few cases. So it possibly perhaps makes more sense to transfer these cases back to the high courts because the number of cases in these uh, high courts is fairly low, uh, sorry, in these tribunals is fairly low. Okay, okay. Now, uh, just move, moving to a slightly different uh, issue here. Uh, some opposition MPs have, uh, have stated in Parliament on record that there is no, there was no enlistment of this bill by the Business Advisory Committee before it was passed. Now, is that uh, is that correct? And, and what is the general process in Parliament for passing a bill of this kind? The Business Advisory Committee actually had listed the bill in the agenda for the uh, week bo in both houses. Um, broadly speaking, um, so it's not a question of, uh, you know, whether uh, the uh, the BAC list, I mean, there is a question of that. There are some larger questions also to think about and I'll just come to that. Um, the notice period for introducing a bill, which is um, seven days in Lok Sabha and uh, five days in Rajya Sabha. The speaker of the Lok Sabha or the chairman of the Rajya Sabha um, may, you know, reduce this time period and may allow a bill to be introduced at a short time. And this is something we have seen has happened over the years on several instances when bills have not, you know, been uh, produced at that adequate notice, which is mentioned. The question to think about is that whether had sufficient to go through the compare the provisions with the ordinance and the court judgments to ensure understand the changes before fully before it was discussed in the house the bill was actually introduced in um, lok sabha on the 2nd august and passed by lok sabha the very next day so just think about it the bill of such enormous proportions making so many changes you have to look at the finance act you have to look at multiple court judgments you have to look at rules you have to understand all of this before you can even wrap your head around what the bill is trying to do, then debate it on the merits of, you know, merits, demerits, whatever, in the House. Members didn't get that time. The bill was passed immediately the very next day. Right. Uh, Prachi, uh, Prachi, we are running out of time now. Just to wind up, uh, one final question. So, with, I mean, from what you've said and even otherwise, uh, it seems to be that one of the bigger justifications for this bill is that it will save uh, money generate savings for the government uh, by winding up so many tribunals, tribunals which it believes are not really, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing so as much work as uh, they should have been doing. So is there anything that is being lost in this bid to save money? Yeah, you know, I mean, on one hand, there is an argument that, you know, you're increasing, high courts already have high pendency, you're transferring these cases to the high court. So uh, you will impact the disposal of cases from these tribunals that are getting, uh, from where the cases are being transferred. Um, you may 
some costs by winding up certain tribunals and by you know their cases but question again is that what is the cost of the cases getting delayed at high courts example one of the uh, appellate authorities being is relates to um certification now think about it a um, producer of a movie if his uh, case related to the release of a movie gets stuck in a high court for years what is the value end of the day for the producer i mean the movie may lose it and it may be cost for the producer so there is a larger question that uh, which is kind of difficult also to quantify that um, there is easily you can quantify okay if you wind up these many tribunals we may end up in this much money but there is no way to actually what is the cost of you know these all these cases getting delayed at high courts if there is an issue of of administrative capacity of these tribunals the larger question is that increase their capacity or should we just wind them up after their case load to the other high pendency other courts anyway suggests that there is an administrative capacity issue overall across the judiciary so it's not these capacity issues are only with tribunals or anything there these kind of issues are there in the high court system as well and it will add on to you know further delays and increase costs for the common man rather right i think uh, there is clearly a case for uh, a proper judicial impact assessment of a legislation of this kind uh, before it becomes law but it doesn't seem like uh, that is going to happen uh, in any case uh, thank you so much prachi for uh, joining us and sharing your insights and thoughts on this very important legislation it was a pleasure talking to you thanks thanks sampar In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.